0: Well, um, thanks to Joe for giving me the preaching gig. He's uh, unleashed me in the pulpit again. It's a um, brave man. Um, you've got the outline, and it's got a few headings on the inside. If you want to jot down a few notes, but let's let's pray. Dear Father, please give us an understanding of this passage and an understanding about uh, you and uh, understand about um, our great gospel that gives us life, eternal life. Pray, I pray that um, what I say will be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, who is Jesus? The man from Galilee? Um, Jesus was an itinerant preacher in a tiny country, um, that was under the domain of Rome 2,000 years ago. Jesus was crucified by the Romans in Jerusalem at the behest of the Jewish leaders uh, when he was in his early 30s and uh, yet his followers have taken the gospel uh, right through the globe, right around the world and uh, Jesus had millions upon millions of followers. Uh, since his execution. Now, Jesus was an ordinary-looking Middle Eastern man. Uh, he wasn't tall. He didn't have blonde hair. Uh, he didn't have blue eyes. He was quite an ordinary-looking guy, uh, but he made extraordinary claims. So today from John 7, we're specifically looking at who Jesus is, what he came to do what claims he made and what responses required by each one of us. And Jesus demands a response. Um, to not respond to Jesus is to reject him. Well, the events in John 7 uh, occurred at the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem. And at this festival, temporary shelters um, were built at the temple. It's a little bit like a, a rock festival, a bit like Glastonbury. Um, so Instead of tents springing up everywhere, uh, these shelters sprung up. And that was part of celebrating God's provision and providing food and water to those who were uh, escaping Pharaoh, um, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after fleeing Egypt. Now, Jesus came late to the festival and he was coming into a hostile environment. He was definitely at risk coming from uh, Galilee, the relative safety of Galilee, and in Jerusalem he was within range of the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him. Well, there's a range of views among the people at the feast uh, about Jesus. The Jewish leaders, apart from Nicodemus, um, saw Jesus as a threat to their power. They thought he was blasphemous in his claims to be the son of God and to be able to f- forgive sins. They are critical of Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders no longer were no longer engaging with Jesus' teaching and his claims. They were just focusing on having him killed. But what about the crowd, the people at the temple? Well, in verses 12 and 13 that um, Ali read to us, we saw that some people in the crowd said that Jesus was a good man. Some recognized that Jesus had a profound understanding of the scripture in spite of not being formally trained by the Pharisees. Some thought Jesus was a prophet, and some even thought he was the Messiah. And a number became believers, acknowledging the power of his signs and of the authority of his teaching. But others, however, thought Jesus was a a deceiver, and that he was trying to lead people astray. And some even thought that he was demon-possessed. Well, what about you? What is your view about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Why did he come to earth? Do you think Jesus was a good man? Do you think that he was some sort of first-century hipster um, spouting platitudes on street corners? Well, at the end of the day, if you're familiar with Jesus' claims, you'll see that Jesus can't just be a good man. If you listen to Jesus' claims, then there are three logical positions to take. Uh, Jesus was the Lord, the Son of God, or Jesus was a liar, or Jesus was deranged, he was a crazy man. And if Jesus is Lord, a dramatic response is demanded uh, from us to him. Well, to better understand who Jesus is and what he came to do and the response required from us, we need to examine his claims. And we've been doing that all the way through John uh, and it's been a very rich time for us. But in John 7 we're looking at three claims and the first big claim by Jesus is that he was sent by God the Father, to deliver and fulfil the Father's message. Um, verse 16, Jesus cried out, My teaching is not my own, it comes from the one who sent me. And over and above the message, or being the messenger, Jesus says that it was also the subject matter of the message. The gospel, the good news, was that Jesus, um, as the Son of God, would redeem believers He is the ultimate fulfilment of the sacrificial system. And in Jesus' death, the penalty for our sins has been paid once and for all. So by the spilling of his blood, we've been reconciled to God if we come to him and believe. So in seeking to understand Jesus and his mission, we see that one of Jesus' claims from John 7 is that he's the son of God and he brings good news from the Father, the message of salvation. And this message, or this good news, is has been enabled by Jesus, but at a terrible cost, his death on the cross. Well, the second great claim by Jesus uh, from John 7 is that he'd quenched the thirst of those who come to him and believe. Um at the climax of the festival... I'll just quench my first. Oh, that's the water that doesn't quench forever. All right, so that's... Um, Jesus uh, would quench the thirst of those who come to him and believe. Um, at the climax of the festival, it's interesting to visualise this, so think hundreds or even thousands of people... The priests are doing what the priests do. And then Jesus says, shouts out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, I love my water sports. Um, kayaking, swimming, fishing, more fishing, <laughs> more fishing. Um However, in the the desert, um, water is not for hobbies. Water is scarce and it's central to life and survival. Um, God provided water for hundreds of thousands of Jews during that 40 years in the desert and the provision of water on that massive scale was celebrated at the Feast of Tabernacles. But the problem with this water, of course, is that it only quenches the thirst temporarily. But Jesus uses the provision of water in the temple, sorry, uh, explains the provision of water as a stepping off point to explain what he offers. So Jesus offers to quench the spiritual thirst of those who come to him and believe. And this quenching will be permanent. So are you spiritually thirsty? Um, the start starting point of being spiritually thirsty um, is to recognise our natural state of spiritual poverty, our abject need for help. We're lost in our sin and we're without hope except through the deliverance of Jesus. Well, Jesus gives us a precondition to the quenching of spiritual thirst. So he encourages, he instructs, thirsty to come to him and believe. And in coming to me, uh, Jesus is saying, focus on me. I have the answers. Don't look for your identity, your self-worth in academic achievement or your sporting prowess, your hobbies, your good looks or anything else. Look for your identity in me. And then Jesus says to believe. In believing you're not just giving assent to a series of propositions or signing up to a club constitution, um, in, your, in believing you're dealing with the problem of sin and coming into a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, think of marriage. Now, I've been married to Heather for 30 years. Her anniversary is on August the 24th, so... <laughs> Heather always forgets. So maybe she's trying to suppress something there. Anyway, so Heather and I went through a ceremony, um, 30 years ago. Um, we said, made some vows, uh, we signed some paperwork, and in the side of the law, we were married. But obviously, marriage is, uh, a lot more than that. It's sort of sharing with each other, believing in each other, uh, supporting each other, and obviously, um, if you're fortunate enough to be blessed with children, then parenting together. So that's a personal relationship, not a contract, or Heather, yeah. Um, In believing in Jesus, we're trusting him personally, sorry, we're trusting him personally that He is who he says he is and that his death achieved what he promised it would. We're seeking to obey him and walk with him day by day uh, in his strength. And we're giving over lordship of our life to Jesus. We're trusting Jesus that he knows better than we do um, about how to run our lives day to day. And we're looking forward to an eternity with him at the centre. And as a believer, you're grafted into the community of believers and become part of Jesus' body, the church. So Jesus claims that he will quench your your spiritual thirst if you come to him and believe. Well, the third big claim from chapter 7 is that he will provide living waters. So verse 38 says, Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And living water was referred to in our first reading from Ezekiel. It's referred to in John 4 that we did a few weeks ago. Living water is the source of spiritual life and blessing. And John explains in verse 39 that living water is the Holy Spirit. So verse 39, by this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. So God is made up, uh, as you know, of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The amazing thing, the unique thing is that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Um, God takes up permanent residence in the body of the believer. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to be um, the counsellor, the comforter and the advocate. In John 14:25, Jesus says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you uh, all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. The living waters doesn't end there. If you look carefully at John 7:38, it says that, um, or Jesus says that rivers of living water will flow out of you. So as well as receiving the Holy Spirit to live in us, um, we're to be a conduit of the Holy Spirit, um, a conduit of spiritual life and blessing. And this means that as believers, we're outward focused. We're Christ ambassadors. Um, we model our faith and speak the gospel and also, um, importantly, encourage other believers. So, so far, we've seen from John 7 that Jesus made huge claims, uh, including that he and his message are from God the Father, he will quench the spiritual thirst of those who recognize that they're spiritually bereft and without hope and who come to Him and believe. Further, Jesus is the source of the Holy Spirit who helps the believer to grow and flows out from the believer to others. Just get some of this quenching liquid. But Why should we regard the Gospel message as true? Are we a bunch of nutters um, if we believe the Gospel? The world is quite hostile to the Gospel. So why is it true? This man from um, the rural backwaters of Galilee was making revolutionary claims. In fact, he was shouting out these claims at the temple during one of the feasts. Was he a ranting, crazy man? Was he deranged or was he a liar? Or was he who he he claimed to be? Well, there's uh, four reasons we can regard the message uh, Jesus delivered as true. First, Jesus didn't fabricate the message to make himself famous. He delivered the Father's message under the Father's authority. Also, Jesus says in verse 17 that genuine God-seekers will recognise the truth of Jesus' message. So verse 17, it says, it's a great verse, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So the gospel message will ring true to those genuinely seeking um, to follow God. So genuine people pursuing God will investigate the gospel and be won over. But second, the message was delivered at great cost. Um, Jesus was crucified to make salvation possible. Jesus knew um, clearly that he was headed to the cross And if there was any other way, he would have taken it and stayed away from the Jewish leaders, away from Jerusalem and away from the cross. But the resurrection, and it's the resurrection, fourthly, that vindicates Jesus and his claims. It proves that Jesus has power over death um, and if there was no resurrection, we should eat, drink, and be merry. We should maximise our possessions or we should go fishing, um, chuck that kayak on the roof of the car and just, just go. But that's not reality. Now, Jesus makes claims, extraordinary claims, powerful claims, but these claims demand a response. Um, The claims involve your spiritual life or death. Your eternal destination is determined by your response to Jesus and his claims. And also, more more to the point, your joy and purpose in this life is determined by your response to Jesus. At the end of the day, Christianity is not a religion about guilt. Um, It's a religion about joy and relationship with Jesus. Well, a number of questions for the unbeliever arise from the passage. So if you're not a Christian, then then listen closely. First, let me ask, are you spiritually thirsty? The thirsty realise that they're bereft, something's out of sync, something's wrong. Uh, you're not satisfied. And more than this, you cannot be become a Christian <clears throat> unless you realise that you are lost. Well, who is this Jesus? Lord, liar or lunatic? Now, if Jesus is deranged uh, or deceitful, then obviously he's not someone to follow. Now, if he's a good man... Um, he made certain claims and he can't be a liar or a lunatic. A good man will not be a liar and a good man is not deranged. The only real option, if Jesus was a good man, is that he, he is who he claimed to be, the Lord. Well, let's follow this Jesus who uh, spoke at the Feast of Tabernacles, sent by the Heavenly Father with the gospel of life. Um, who came to make a way of salvation? This Jesus, who worked on the cross and in the power of His resurrection, gave us the privilege of being adopted as—sorry, um, of being adopted sons and daughters of the Father. So our response then should be to repent uh, from our sins and claim His forgiveness, and endeavour to live in a way that pleases Him <clears throat> in the strength of the life-giving Spirit. Well, a further thing for those who are not believers, in becoming a believer, we come under Jesus' lordship. Paul in Galatians 2.20 speaks of being crucified with Christ. Now, that's not a small thing, but it is an appropriate thing if you believe Jesus is who he claims to be and the cross achieved what um, he claimed it achieved. So, if you're not a believer here today, is there something holding you back? Uh, something holding you back from belief or making peace with God? Do you think you are, <coughs> excuse me, too sinful to become a Christian? Have you slept with someone outside marriage? Have you committed, um, fraud or lied? Um, are you addicted to porn and seem powerless, um, to change? Our sin may be great, but the grace of God is greater. Grace means undeserved mercy. None of us sitting here today deserve mercy uh, or forgiveness of sin or eternal life with Christ. But that's what Jesus has enabled and declared. We're recipients of a massive gift if we come to Jesus and believe. Now, another barrier to... um, belief is being willful. So being willful means uh, you don't want to be under the lordship of anyone and especially Jesus. The thing is we're designed to be under God's lordship and this is where we will be most joyous and complete. Are you making ongoing excuses? Um, Now, in becoming a Christian you might have very genuine queries, but do they become excuses after a while? Are you telling God essentially that you will not follow him unless you can carve him into a shape that's acceptable to you? But we have to remember God is God. It's not for us to dictate to him what he should be like. So deal with your obstacles, discuss them with a believer you trust, and remember that in becoming a believer, you're not signing up for a life of misery. Um, you're headed to true joy, a relationship with Jesus characterized by joy. So, the final thing, the final challenge is to the believer. Um, are you spiritually healthy? Now, when I was in my glory days, in my teens, a long time ago, uh, I ate well and I did lots of exercise. I uh, did Swimming training, I did a lot of cycling, cycling, hiking, kayaking. Um, I was very fit and I had a flat stomach. I'm not sure if I had abs or not, but certainly a flat stomach. Um, now I eat the same amount of food, but I have little exercise. So as you see, I'm somewhat chubby. Um, my daughter, Elise, who's 22, very dis uh, dis- uh respectfully says that I look pregnant regularly. So to the spiritually healthy, we need good input. Sorry, to be spiritually healthy, uh, we need to to have good input and spiritual exercise. So we get input from reading the Bible, meeting together and hearing God's word uh, expounded, praying, uh, going to Bible studies, But this knowledge is enlivened when we have spiritual exercise. So this is living and speaking the gospel to others, but also very much encouraging other believers. And that's how we get our spiritual endorphins. But if you have spiritual input, but no spiritual exercise, you'll, you won't be spiritually healthy and in a sense you're spiritually obese. And if you have very little input, um, then you will be spiritually emaciated, uh, spiritually anorexic and not have much to give. So be a spiritually healthy Christian. Good input, good spiritual exercise so that you can be a conduit of blessing to others. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that we thank you that um, there's a way of salvation. We thank you that uh, if we come to you and believe and repent of our sins, that uh, we can be brought into a joyous relationship with you. Um, do pray for any today that do not believe that uh, you'll challenge them and give them understanding of the gospel, and that they'll have, um, that they'll be able to talk to, uh, Christians that they trust. Pray for those who, are, uh, are believers that we will be spiritually healthy, that we'll have good input, but also, um, spiritual exercise so that we're a source of blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen.